Welcome everyone to Be Better Betters. I'm the host, Spanky. Thanks for listening. My guest this week has been in the Las Vegas bookmaking scene for almost 17 years. He started as a ticket writer at Bally's, was a risk manager at Canter Gaming, moved up to the director of trading at Caesars, and is currently the assistant sportsbook manager at Circa. He's seen and done it all, and several friends who work side by side with him have said he's one of the best they've ever worked with. And we'll get into that later on. Please welcome my man, Jeff Davis. Jeff, thanks for coming on, brother. Thanks for having me, Spank. Appreciate the intro. So, Jeff, did you get into gambling a lot growing up? Or Yeah, I, uh, I grew up in central Massachusetts and was always into sports and games and, you know, going back to like, I don't know, 12, 13 years old, you're playing cards or board games with your buddies and you're always putting something on a couple dollars or whatever. And that kind of got me started. And then by the time I was in high school, I got a job working at an indoor baseball facility, doing camps for kids and batting cages and whatnot. And there were a lot of uh, local high school coaches and some college, local college baseball players that worked there. And, you know, you learn about betting sports. I think I bet my, made my first sports bet. I was probably a sophomore in high school and uh, yeah, I was into it ever, ever since then I was hooked immediately and uh, I've lived it ever since. What were you betting parlay cards, parlay tickets or, uh, or just- no, just call just calling a guy. Uh, I think uh, my first bet was probably uh, used to play a and R's back then. $25 a and R's was uh, probably the, uh, my first go. And then you, you learn quickly that, they charge you 28 to 25 instead of 27.50 if you're betting $25. So I started betting $30 cuz then I wouldn't have to pay the extra 50 cents. So that was <laughs> I figured that out real quick. Well, it's amazing cuz when I when I first started a five timer was was risking 30 to win 25. So I was laying 120 the whole time and I had no idea when I was in high school. Um so that's pretty good. I guess I was in Jersey so they jerked a little bit more than they did in Massachusetts. <laughs> um uh so Okay, so you, you know you, you interact with a local bookmaker and stuff, and is this you know all your friends are playing? This is just a way of life. What town in Massachusetts? Uh, I grew up in a small town called Upton, which is like it's about thirty miles west of Boston or so. Like if you draw a triangle from Boston, Providence, and Worcester, like kind of somewhere in between. Um, yeah, I grew up there, and then just uh, worked at a bar for a while in my early twenties, and there was always you know a guy work, you know, that would come into the bar that would have a shop or whatever. And you just always, I was just always betting and sports betting is something that's always been interesting to me as a guy who, you know, grew up watching sports and playing sports. Uh, it was just a way that I then thought I could apply my knowledge uh, to gamble and win money. Well, winning money was quite difficult then because you, you know, you don't know remotely what you do now, but it was sure a lot of fun and uh, wouldn't change a thing. Beautiful. Okay. So, you know, you're, you're, did you, um, you're in high school. Tell me after high school now, what's the next step in your, uh, you know, you're coming up in, in, uh, in the gambling world. And, you know, when, when do you wind up making the trip out to Vegas? So I, in college, went to college and 
really college for me was about anything other than going to school um, myself. And most of the baseball team would sit in the cafeteria all day and play cards and guys would come in and out during class and the, the two on two card games would split up with guys who weren't in class. And I would sit there most of the day gambling with the guys. And that was a lot of fun. And you end up, I ended up picking up poker, maybe uh, probably in my early twenties and was playing a lot. Uh, lived down by Foxwoods for a while. Was playing at Foxwoods uh, one Saturday, October of 2005. Uh, it rained. I'm going to say four or five straight days without stopping. Uh, roof leaked. Master bedroom ceiling ended up on the floor. So my buddies and I were like, "Okay, we got to go somewhere. We got to move. This house is going to have to be completely redone." And we we're like, "Oh, let's go to Vegas." And we kind of laughed it off and. We sat around all day and couldn't come up with a better idea. So we booked a flight for the next day. Uh, we came out here for a couple of weeks, uh, found a place, uh, signed all the paperwork, flew back, packed up all our stuff. Uh, we had like, uh, we couldn't move in for like six weeks. So we stayed, we all stayed with friends for a period of time. And, and we packed up, uh, we packed up a 28 foot U-Haul, put the car on the back, towed it, drove across the country. And uh, here we are. Wow. When you made that move, did you think you would be there uh, permanently or, or what? What You know, I, I wasn't really sure, but I knew I knew I was playing cards. And I knew it was beginning to go really well. And, you know, there was a lot of positivity and it was a good change. And I came out here and was playing, uh, playing a lot of Omaha high low and it was it was going really well. So, you know, that that worked well. And, and as we got toward. I uh, came out here in November of 05 and then uh, August of 06 uh, had a bad run, played bad, stuck in steaming, so to speak. Uh, woke up one morning with just a few grand and no job. I was like, all right, got to start working. So I, I scoured the job market and I thought to myself, well, a sportsbook ticket writer, that's right up my alley. I was you know, going to High Live at 18, 19 and going to the dog track. So I knew all the all the bets. So I figured it was a job I could do, even though I'd never worked in a casino before and never really had any real formal work training. Uh, so I applied for a job at Bally's, uh, got lucky. Uh, the supervisor who interviewed me uh, happened to grow up 20 minutes from where I grew up. So we had an instant connection. Uh, I got hired and uh, yeah, I just worked from there and started working at Bally's November of 2006, writing tickets uh, and was at Bally's uh, wrote tickets for, I'm going to say like two to three months, uh, ended up being like a counter supervisor for, until 2010, uh, when I made the move down to the M to work for Colbert and, uh, Cantor Gaming. Beautiful. So let's get back to the poker a little bit. Poker 2005, Las Vegas, probably it doesn't get bigger than that when it comes to the height of poker. This is right around the whole moneymaker uh, thing and, um, you know, um, fresh, fresh meat out there. Um, a, probably an era that would never uh, be replicated again was um, did, did you continue to play poker as you were working as a ticket writer? Like how lucrative was it back then? Well, it was really good. And then, you know, with what my situation, I just kind of got frustrated with the whole thing. So I didn't play for a long time. And then there was a period in 2009 when Bally's closed the book for the summer, like right after the economic crisis hit and I got laid off 
And I started where I worked at the world series of poker in the cage for like two months. It's like a temporary employment to get me to the fall. And I was, I, I picked it up again, uh, playing cards then while I was working. And then that was about it. Like I haven't played since, gosh, I don't know when, how long it's been since I've played. I just don't have the time now because poker is a game where you got to go and shut off life. Uh, Cause you could sit there for hours and hours and hours if the game is good. So I don't have time for it anymore, but yeah, it was, uh, if you're in the right mindset, it was quite a lucrative game. Uh, you know, your, your bets per hour was, was really good. All right. So let's talk Bally's Bally's is, um, is an interesting, uh, I, you know, the sports book is kind of like, they have like a little mini shopping mall, if I'm not mistaken, right down there. And then the sports books off to the side of that little mini, uh, uh, that little mini shopping mall down like in the, in, the, in the lower level. Am I correct? Is that still, uh, I haven't been there in a long time, but is that still how, how it is or was that? Yeah, that was- that's, yeah, that's how it was. And I think it's still how it is. I've been in there forever. Um, it, yeah, it was great. Cause this is before mobile apps. So everyone that wanted, you know, came to the book to watch games. So that place was packed on the weekends and the lines after, you know, after sessions of games where, you know, your 9 a.m. college football games would, would go and then they'd get over at 12.15, 12.30 as all the 12.30, 1 o'clock games starting. So the line is 10 miles long and it was just a rinse repeat of business. And it was it was fantastic. And it's just a different animal now because now with the mobile apps, you no know locals really do that anymore. And people just, they would rather make their deposit and play on their own terms. And, and it's just completely different animal 15 years ago to now so bally's was that let's describe the atmosphere when there was runners running around a lot of locals even the pros and stuff bally's was right there on on, on um and and what was across the street like on the strip uh not so it's, yeah it's yeah. uh it was opposite corner was caesar's and then directly across on the west side was bellagio and then across on the north side it was Barbary Coast, which became Bill's Gambling Hall and Saloon, probably kind of right as I started. I don't remember exactly when that was, but I'm going to, you know, somewhere in that general vicinity. So it was like a good, good spot for action. You got the the runners would come in the side door because there was a parking lot over the side. Mm-hmm. So you could go, they could go to Ellis Island and get the Leroy's line. Mm-hmm. Uh, behind Bally's and then they could go another half a block down the street to, to the Tuscany, which had the Cal Neva line. And then you could, they could come to us, which had, uh, which had the Caesars line. And when it was still Barbary Coast across the street, that was a coastline. So there were in uh, Bellagio was an MGM line. So they had five, you know, the professional types had five places they could go all within, you know, shouting distance of each other. So yeah, there was a fair amount of runners coming in and out of there. Yeah, it was a very different era as it is, and and it was pretty easy to get from one place to another. Right now, there's it's it's so hard to even cross that street, um, uh, right to get to the the Bills Gambling Saloon. I don't even know if you could cross that street. There's like skywalks and all this other stuff. Or I'm just yeah, to- you've got to go all the way out front and get the bridge, and then yeah, yeah, it's, bridge, yeah, it's a much longer walk than as the crow flies, so to speak. Yeah, as it used to be. Okay, so um. Let's, so before you go to Cantor, um, what makes you decide to, to leave Bally's? You're, you're a supervisor. You're there for a number of years. Um, how do you, why do you take the plunge? More pay, more opportunity? Well, tell me uh, how, what made you decide to go 
and make take that. I had, a, I had a couple of uh, friends that wrote tickets there, and I started to realize what was going on in terms of like they're taking bets, they're taking action. And I was in a place where I didn't want to work out front anymore, or I shouldn't say anymore, but not forever. I knew being behind the screen was where I would have the best chance at long-term success. And I knew that getting, taking a ticket writer job at the M for a period of time would be my best long-term strategy. So they were looking for a couple of guys. I set up a, an interview with Colbert. I went down there. I talked to him for maybe two, three sentences. And he goes, you want the job? You start Friday. And he turned around. He went back in the office. And I laughed and I said, okay. And, you know, that's pretty much it. And I started, uh, started like it was probably, you know, I always like to give two weeks notice. And the people at Bally's were fantastic. But it was three days notice. I think I called my boss on Tuesday. I'm like, I got two days left. Sorry. Like, I, I you know, felt bad. But. It was kind of one of those, everyone wanted to work there and I wanted to work there. And I knew if I didn't take the job at that point, I wasn't sure how long it was going to be um, before I could get back in there. And I just thought it was in my best long-term interest to just go. And I did. So what year was this? This was October of 2010 uh, is when I started writing tickets at the M and I was there until I'm going to say I wrote tickets for maybe six to eight weeks uh, at the M. Uh, first in, uh, initial reaction of Mike Colbert, who, I, have, who uh, I think is one of the best bookmakers that ever uh, that w- ever uh, was ever in Las Vegas or the world for that matter. But go ahead. Clearly, a very sharp guy. Didn't obviously didn't have a lot of access to him at the beginning because he, he sat in his office and uh, I was a ticket writer. But you just kind of grew to to know. Like as so, I left. They moved me. When I moved, when I went to the M, there was only the M. That was their only property. But right then is when they started expanding. They were building books in the Cosmo, the Hard Rock, the Trop. They were growing their operation. And because I had out front experience and I really had never been behind the screen before, they sent me to the Trop to be the property manager from Go. So once I got there, I started to realize how much pull he had in the company and his overall knowledge because there was uh, another guy who was the I think it was the COO who was technically my boss and then Colbert was there who was like the risk boss and sometimes you'd get two different orders from both of them and you were trying to decide okay which one which do I do and then you quickly realize that Colbert was ultimately uh, the right one and then you just kind of see you see who comes in and make bets and you see how lines move and you, you kind of realize, okay, this guy, he's, he's on top of stuff. And then I got the call to go down there to start working risk at the beginning of 2011, uh, right before the football season, 2011, 2012. Um, and that was my first time behind the screen. And you, you come in, you've been working in the business for five years. I've been, you know, in and around sports betting for, heck 20 you know almost 20 years at that point you think you know everything and then you get behind the screen at that place and you realize you know nothing and you have to everything you know the first thing you have to do is everything you know or think you know you just have to throw in the trash and start over and that was the best decision i made and then you you talk to you talk to colbert for a bit you realize like okay he's booking with an opinion 
we have a list out front, like, okay, I want to need these sides today, yada, yada, yada. And then you, you just start to learn about uh, like the differences from behind the counter. This is amazing. So I, I love this, I, you know, because I was actively actively involved um, with the, um, you know what I mean? I had a runner there. And um, so I just know how good they were. And I know I have nothing but respect. So I kind of want to get into that. But let's talk about, like, you know, so because so, the Tropicana, you know, it was kind of like a re resurgence of the Tropicana, the Tropicana, an old school Las Vegas joint. Um, and uh, that's pretty established. You know, you're about to manage the sports book at the Tropicana. How did that feel like them? Like, I know, you know, it's, it's like, was that something that was special to you at that time? Or did you think anything of it? Or was it just like, oh, okay, whatever. I'm still going to be out front. I kind of want to be in the back moving numbers, but um, how, how, how did you take that news? Uh, it was good. It was like my first, it was my first job ever where I had to wear a suit every day, um, which was, which was a change, but no, it was, it was cool because they really did a great job of the book. The screens were great and the action was good on the weekends. But again, like most books, it's a ghost town during the week. And, and people, I think what early on the problem was it just kind of was stuck in its old reputation like they had a new owner and they tried to do things nice but they kept the Tropicana name and I think personally it hurt it quite a bit because I don't think enough people went there to realize how good a book it was like we had great pricing we took big limits it was a great place the chairs were comfortable the screens were great there was a lot of positives and it, you know it turned into a good book but it never it never panned out into what I thought it could and i don't really know why but you know maybe the whole tropicana name was something but yeah it was i i took pride in it i you know loved it every day but you know deep down in my heart like going to book games is what ultimately i wanted to do okay, so how do you how do you now do they just come out at you and say okay we have an opportunity for you to come in the back do you make a request to say listen I've been I've been up front. I've been a clerk. I, I tell her I've been um, I, I've been, you know, the, the property manager here, but I want to book games. Did you make the initial talk to Colbert and say, listen, when can I get my opportunity or did he just come at you out of nowhere? No, I had talked to him a few times uh, toward the end of ticket writing as I was going to the trop. And and while I was at the trop, there were there were some things that, you know, I didn't. I didn't like the way some of the things were run, but again, out of my control. And I was just happy to, to have the gig I did and appreciate it for everything. So Colbert knew that I wanted, that's where I ultimately wanted to go. And I think he also knew that that's where I probably would succeed the most. So when they had an opening, uh, August of, of 11 or August of, yeah, it was August of 11. Uh, he called me up and uh, yeah, I jumped at the chance. So how many people, you walk in August 2011, how many people are moving lines? or Who are you working side by side with? It, uh, Tom was the night guy, and then there was a guy, Greg, in the morning, and Colbert would sit in the office, and uh, that's pretty much it in terms of moving numbers because nobody really took any time off. Everybody just worked every day and was in the grind, and uh, it, you just kind of loved it. And then the, we added a we added another a fifth guy, maybe three, four months after I showed up. But man, it was it was just different. It was 
you, like I said earlier, you think you know so much and then you get behind the screen and you realize, you know, almost nothing. And that was a whole new learning curve. And for me, it was more like, I'm going to sit here and watch and absorb as much as I possibly can every single day. And, and that's what I did. So your, your first, like, I'm, I'm just, cause you know, you're saying there's, there's, you said it was, uh, I know Tom, Tom Foster, uh, Greg was there. You said Colbert, um, and you now, now who's, you know, from day one, is there somebody working next to you or they're just threw you right into the fire and you're alone? You know what I mean? Like, how does that, how does this happen? This is a multi, multi gazillion dollar, uh, you know, they're, they're booking the biggest numbers, uh, not only in Las Vegas, but, you know, in parts of the world, like they, they were booking really, really high August of 2011. Um, you know, who's holding your hand during this process? It was mostly Tom, like most of the, most of the time there were two people there all the time. Like there was two people there pretty much all the time. Gotcha. And, you know, Colbert worked long hours. He, you know, he wouldn't leave until at least after, you know, six, seven o'clock most nights. So when, when he left really, well, you know, during the summer, it was just whatever the seven o'clock baseball games were, maybe you get the, the pack 12 college football games would still be on the board and we'd do some half times, but really, for me, the beginning of, of my career was a lot of the grunt stuff. Uh, I watched a lot of the stuff to like the soccer and the tennis and any like other like niche kind of markets. It was just like when it moves, follow it. So you don't get our action. And really for me, I wasn't making at that point, I'm not making a lot of decisions for big money. I'm just kind of the guy playing defense back there uh, for a while until I could kind of get up to speed. Let's talk about some tips that you learn from guys like Tom and, and Colbert. You know, what did they teach you? Um, what lessons? You said you, you thought you knew things. Like, you know, a lot of the, miscon uh, the misconception of people that don't really move numbers or they're not in the weeds of the business, you know, they think, hey, you're a bookmaker. You want to get equal action on both sides. Like, did you go in with that uh, 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 notion that this is what you were supposed to be doing? Like, did you, or... Or and when you when you found out that listen here's the sides we're booking to that we're going in with an opinion was that an eye opener for you was that surprising or I don't know surprising is the right word but like a few of the things I learned instantly is like number one it's not about picking winners nobody can quote pick winners it's it's about getting the best of the number and everybody is fighting to get the best of the number and ultimately those are the people who are going to win over the course of the long term and that. Like once you have the ability to take your like what you think is your opinion or what you think might be a good opinion and being able to put your ego aside, throw it in the trash and say, OK, this is how this works. Like like and just watching and learning is people are making bets at a furious pace for large amounts of money. And then you see, you know, you have big recreational players, too, and then they'll make big bets and maybe it gets moved. Maybe it doesn't. And, you know, you just don't realize that, yeah, it's not about balancing the book. It's about, okay, we have intelligent action on this side. Let's try to need that side if we can. Like, it doesn't always work that way. Sometimes you just take a couple of limit bets and the number runs and you just got to take your medicine. But a lot of it is, is just the learning of how to position yourself into spots that, that you want to be in. Like a lot of games, you can just kind of let it flow naturally and you don't have to go out of your way. Like somebody lays seven, somebody else takes eight. Uh, you know, the game kind of sits seven and a half and it doesn't really move. Like those games are pretty easy to book. It's 
it's the games that go from four to seven to three and a half. Those are the ones that are challenging and trying to decide what move is real and who's on what side. And do we want to get back to our opening number as fast as possible? Do we want to meet the move, beat the move down or do we trust the first move and do you take a bet all the way down? And that's not the same every time. So that was, that was one of the games that you would play with yourself in your head. Like, okay, this guy laid four and this guy laid five and a half, but now this other guy who we respect took plus seven minus 20 and the thing's steaming back the other way. Now you got to figure out why that that's the challenge that I still love to this day. You mentioned the art, um, not the art, the opening numbers. Um, I just thought about the art because you just described such a beautiful art form, but the opening numbers, uh, you know, Cantor was, was notorious for having uh, uh, opening numbers to be able to generate opening numbers. How much, uh, uh, you know, confidence and equity did you guys put into those openers? Um, did you feel good about them? Is that, you know, were you able to change your mind right away if you got some sharp action that was, uh, that, were, that was pounding your opening numbers? You know, I didn't get into a lot of that then. I was still really new and Mike did a lot of that. So to the time at Cantor, I can't really speak to that. But I can say in terms of openers now, like at Circa with the limits we take, and, you know, that probably runs similar to the line of how it was with Cantor. If we got a few guys back there, Matt Metcalf and a few others that make a good number. And when we open a number, we're – you know, at least mostly confident in most of the numbers. Yeah, there are a few games every week where, you know, four guys make a number and they're not even in the ballpark. And you're like, okay, like you're not confident. But sometimes you, you open a game three and it gets bet to six. But then when it pours back to three, the challenge is, okay, if it's coming back to three, our opener was good. We need to beat the market back to where we came from so we don't get doubled back on um, cause the limits go up as the line solidifies throughout the week. So that is now like one of the greatest challenges is when you take a bet minus three, minus three and a half, minus four, minus five and a half. If somebody takes you six and a half that you respect when the limit is twice as high, like sometimes the move is way bigger than you might think on the surface. Cause you don't, you know, if you think the number ultimately is three, you, you don't want to take three limit bets at, six and a half six and five per se when you've taken the same number of limit bets on the way up but that limit at that time was half the size so that's the the challenge in in bookmaking that i love so much and i love every day is trying to figure out like what is you know where to be at all times and any bet that comes in can completely change your opinion that you had on a game so, and there's always new information. So staying on your toes all the time is of the utmost importance. I love it. Um, you just mentioned when limits go up, uh, in Cantor, it was notorious Tuesday, um, 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern, or maybe it was 1130. Now that I'm thinking about it. No, I think it was 11, um, 11 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Pacific Tuesday, college football. You guys were taking 40 dimes on college football sides on a Tuesday which was, till this day, I don't think has been replicated in Vegas. Um, not to say that you guys, that Circa, that won't happen again, um, but that was, you know, unbelievable. Um, was there a little bit of a buzz in the air 
right up until you go, you know, coming into that Tuesday opener. Um, how was that? You know, you, you're starting August of 2011, um, going into that football season. Um, you know, all the runners are there. Um, again, there's no app, so guys are going to have to bet in actually in in the resort um, on the little computers that they had and stuff. How was that? Yeah, it was crazy. And, and like then I didn't know anything. So a lot of this was all new to me. But now kind of like looking back on the way things are and two things about dealing 40 dime limits on a Tuesday in college football. One, you better be darn sure you have somebody that knows what they're doing when it comes to hanging numbers and booking games because you can get carried out if you're not careful. But the positive of, of the taking 40,000 on a Tuesday, it limits, it kind of limits your ability to get completely faked out and buried on the wrong side because, yeah, it can happen, but it takes some stones to be 40 dime faking on Tuesday. Yes, That's has it happened? Sure. But the chances of all of the bets you be taking are real, are very, are much higher. Than if the limit was five dimes, Great because point. ultimately, if the limit is five dimes and it's going to be say thirty dimes or fifty dimes, ultimately you're just trying to. A lot of guys can just be trying to get the number where they want early in the week for five dimes or for ten dimes when they can, and then the number gets to where they want, then they can bet limits all across the board, and it's worth it for them to to spend the five grand. But when the limits are forty, you know maybe it's a different story. But again. You better have somebody in that chair that knows what they're doing or, or it can get ugly fast. It's amazing because like you, you think about it, like, you know, Chris notoriously would always increase their limits at 10 a.m. Eastern or 1030 a.m. Eastern on, on Thursdays. Everybody like so, so there's a fine line. You, you, you know, you can't do it an hour to kick off because then it's so hard if, you know, to be able to maneuver, to be able to put yourself in a situation where you want to go in having the right side. Right. So, you, you but you don't want to do it super early or not doing it Sunday night, obviously taking 40 dimes. So it's, it's just I find it so fascinating on the conversations that take place on. Why does one office do it Tuesday? Why does one office do it Thursday? Um, you know, I've, you know, I, I, you know, because you still have Monday, you have Sunday night and Monday to be able to find that. Okay, you're writing five dime bets. I remember in Canner, you're writing five dime bets to try to see. Okay, try to get a, a feeling of where this right number is. But like you said, five dime bets when you're taking forty the next day, there could be some serious manipulation there. Um, and there was like I know that you know. Um, we, we were, were, we were making power moves back then just to, you know what I mean? Because the, the, the 40,000, that, that lure of just having that limit is just, you know, you know, you don't even, you, you really don't even want to bet on Monday, um, just so that you could get that 40. Um, so it, I, I just find it so, you know, in Las Vegas history, you just think about it, you know, you go back to the Stardust days where they had the lottery and I think they were taking five dimes or whatever it was, but man, 40 dimes on a Tuesday it's not even the stardust, if I'm not mistaken, had something like that. So I just think that it was just so, so damn aggressive and, um, and they were successful at doing so. So I just, you know, it's, um, I got nothing but respect for Mike Colbert. Again, I, I think he was one of the best that ever, that ever, um, uh, sat in the chair and, um, you know, um, you even mentioned that you just learned so much from him. Um, is, are there any, things that that you could attribute to how you book today that you could just go back to Mike Colbert that's like hey I learned this from him yeah like the whole 
for me, like when they moved, when Culver moved on and they brought in Tony D who had a completely different philosophy than, than Colbert did. I got to learn from both of them, both experienced bookmakers, both good at what they did, but both completely different styles. And, you know, as, as somebody that always was trying to learn and trying to get better, you kind of can take pieces of what each person does and say, okay, I like what this, this does, or I like what that does. And you kind of make your own philosophies. And one of the things that I liked that Colbert did was the moves weren't always the same. Like sometimes like, you know, you'll lay four into a place and, and it goes to five or, and it, it's kind of robotic and, and you have to, you, you can't just do the same thing all the time because if you make the same moves all the time, the sharper betters are going to be aware of the moves you make and they can set you up better. So like trusting your opinion when your opinion is good and knowing how to book to it, uh, really important thing that, uh, that I learned from him. Amazing. So beautiful. Okay. So Cantor, let's talk about, you know, cause you were there on that fateful day when, um, the house of cards came falling down. Uh, you know, you worked at football season, 2011, 2012, and, um, you know, action was hot and heavy before we get into that. Any stories, you know what I mean? Big betters, anything that, you know, you want to share, because I'm sure there's just the stories are endless. We could probably do a whole episode just on canner stories, but um, anything that sticks out in your mind. <laughs> there's a few, I mean, I got a million of them. I don't know what's good for air and what's like, no, everything's good for air, but I don't know what I can say. <laughs> um, the, no, like I was probably like my second Sunday writing tickets and you know, I had never managed a drawer with a bank of that size before. And again, this is before apps. So people are betting a hundred dimes cash over the counter all day. So I'm at night. So I have all the money or a large portion of the money. And some guy I'd never seen before comes down from VIP and he's got a couple of tickets. And he's like, Yeah, I'll take him. And he looks at me and he goes, Yeah, you don't have enough money. And I just kind of like laughed this guy off because that's what. The $20 guy says to make a joke like, aha, you can't afford to pay this. And then you pay him. It's like $42. And he hands me, he hands me three winning tickets. And it was like seven figures. And I was like, oh, you're right. I don't have enough money. And, you know, it's the guy hands me a Samsonite over the counter. And I put it on the chair behind me. And the supervisor goes down in the cage and gets a bunch of money. And I start running bricks and just filling a, filling a Samsonite with bricks of uh, 50,000 bricks. The guy, I had to put so much money in the suitcase. He had to throw his clothes away uh, that he had in the suitcase that he was here for to get it all in and shut it. So wow. yeah, that was one that, uh, that sticks out. But yeah, there's, this just wild stuff. The money that flowed through that joint. My God, just absolutely yeah, insane. Unreal. Unreal. We had a million posted up. We couldn't even keep, we, we put it in action every single, all the time. We just couldn't, we couldn't keep enough money in there. Um, any VIP stories you want to mention? You don't have to mention names or anything like that. Anything that you could think of when it comes to uh, important yeah, players? We, yeah, there was another guy that used to come in all the time. Big better. Most people would know me. Uh, <laughs> I was, again, was probably, again, I was only there a couple of weeks writing tickets and he comes in to cash a ticket and he would always, he never, he would always bet the flat amount. He would bet 
whatever, a hundred to win 91, nine, 10 or whatever it was, <laughs> you know, and he, he, he hands me a ticket and it was the 59 bet that was a winner. And so it wins 45, 454 and some change. So I, I run the money in a, in a counter and I hand it across and I reach over and I hand him the, like the 45 cents or whatever it was. And he gives it that he looks at it and he gives it this 30 look and he goes, they still make this shit. And he throws it on the counter laughing and walks away with his, walks away with his hundred thousand. So yeah, I was, uh, I got to check a lot of that. And yeah, it was, that, that place was wild. It was just, it was just different. It was just different than things are today, man. It was, uh, it was fun. It was crazy. Did that guy, you know, without naming names, did that guy wind up uh, sharing a lot of his winning tickets all, uh, on social media a little bit? Yeah, man, you know, I don't want to go too far, but you know, <laughs> people, two, two and two generally make four. Gotcha. Very good. Awesome. Great stories. Okay, so let's talk about, um, let's talk about uh, October 24, 2012, a day I'll never forget, obviously. Um, you know, you're on your way to, you know, go ahead. Why don't you take it from there? I know um, uh, you were working that day, weren't you? Or Yeah. And I, I always worked nights. I would come in one, two o'clock and I would stay late. And the way the schedule worked is we, everybody works six days. And like I, the morning guy, I worked one day a week in the morning and it was his day off and it was Wednesday and I'm driving to work and I get a text about what's going on. I walk in and there's a bunch of dudes in suits behind a counter that I didn't recognize and, you know, come to find out it's gaming agents. And, but I still have to go about my, my job and my business as, as expected. And, you know, to have somebody from, you know, gaming agents standing over your shoulder watching, it's just uncomfortable uh, situation. And, uh, yeah, they just gave me a gave me a list of names to lock up a, a bunch of accounts, and I had to do that and handle customers and do my normal business with basically somebody just watching every move I make and asking me a bunch of questions. And then you're torn between, you know, you want to answer them all because you, you know it, it's your job and your work for this. You know, you're working in the state, and the state gaming engine is there, and you've you know, they want to know the answer. And then you have the Cantor legal counsel calling you and telling you not to answer anything without the legal counsel there. So yeah, that was, uh, of all, you know, I've been in this racket for you know, 17, almost 17 years now. And that was the, my least favorite day I've ever worked in my life. It was my least favorite day as well. Um, <laughs> so all right, so you know, we're, we're again, we don't need to get into the details. Every, anybody can look it up, but obviously, Mike Cobra gets arrested, as do I. The whole thing winds up, you know, being national attention and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, completely blown out of proportion, but we'll get to that another, you know, that, that's for another time, another topic. Uh, okay, so now you, you know, Cobra's gone. What now, you know, you're left now having to manage the joint. Um, and, um, with, with, you know, with Tom and I guess who else was, you know, you, you, you know, you just, you just got a lot more responsibility than you ever thought you had. Let's describe how that was. Yeah, that was crazy because, you know, business didn't stop. Um, yeah, a couple customers didn't have accounts for the time being, but really nothing changed other than our responsibility and how many hours that we had to work. Cause 
you know, we really, the only things I could really get my hands on were the stuff, the stuff that Colbert was just too busy to manage. He was too busy to do. So now we have four guys and we basically just kind of decided, okay, two of us are going to work days. Two of us are going to work nights. and We're just going to work every day until somebody tells us otherwise. And we really had no friggin' idea what we were doing. Uh, looking back on it, I, I have no idea how we survived because, you know, yeah, you watch all this stuff on the screen, but you're not actively making the decision. So I have no idea what our results were for that month or six weeks. I think we went, cause I think we worked like 40 some straight days. Um, but yeah, that was, that was an education that I'll never forget just because now you're in it. Now you're making these decisions. Uh, you're listening to the bosses who were, you know, maybe not the best, um, yeah, it was a it was a challenge, but one I'll never forget. One I appreciate because, really, if nothing changed and things went as they were, you know, I don't know how long it would have been or what would have taken place for me to be able to, like, I guess, extend my education as a bookmaker. Because if you know if Colbert was still there, then he still would have had full control of everything, and and I wonder how things would be different. But yeah, it was. Uh, that was crazy times because, again, we didn't know what the hell we were doing. We were just pushing buttons and, and hoping we could get it right, and it was wild. Go from having a Mike Colbert as your boss to someone else, no matter, you know, uh, there's not too many people. It's going to definitely be a downgrade. How much of a downgrade was it without naming names? Um, it wasn't a downgrade at all. It was actually just different. Um, gotcha. At the very beginning, like Tony D and I, we get along phenomenal to this day and he is somebody I can trust and, and we can go to him when I have a question. And at the very beginning, uh, I don't think it was, we got along great for the first couple of weeks. And then once I started, he just taught me a lot of fundamentals because the difference is like Colbert was a field book maker. It was, he was just moving stuff based on his opinion and you never really knew what he was thinking or what he was doing outside of the opinions he told you he had. Whereas Tony would, was a much more fundamentally sound, uh, less, a lot less gamble. So I appreciated it a ton and it helped me a ton in my career because I now got to see the extreme of two ways to do it. And I can and I kind of liked a lot of the things that they both did and how do I take things from both people and make it my own and do what I think is optimal where the fundamentals are right a lot of the times, but sometimes they're just not. And knowing like as you book, you know, hundreds of thousands of games like I have at this point, you, you just kind of develop a feel for things and players and, and how the bets come and when to stray from the fundamentals and just make like kind of a wacko move on the surface, but really ultimately it makes sense. Beautiful. Okay. So from Canner now, um, wh wh where's the next stop? Um, so before, before they, you get to, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I'm saying, I think now, um, doesn't Canner still expand at this point? Yeah. So what happened in 2000 and that was 2013. Yeah, they opened, a, they got the book in the Atlantis and the Bahamas, and they sent me and another guy down there to run it. Um, 
And I think there were dreams and visions of grandeur uh, from upper management at Cantor, thinking there was going to be all this handle down there and all this international money. And it was just quite the opposite. Um, that was my first experience in, in really just running a place and making my own decisions and doing, I don't want to say do whatever I want, because that's not ultimately true. But you realize quickly that, okay, this is a square joint. We don't have any sharp, there's no sharp money. So it was illegal for locals to gamble down there. So you couldn't, people weren't like sharp guys weren't living down there gambling. So that was out. So the only sharp people you would get would be a random, like if it was very, I kind of looked at it, it was a resort that people went on vacation that happened to have a sports book. It wasn't a sports book destination. So the only time you would get some sharp action would be if, you know, maybe a guy and his wife and his kids went down for the weekend and he happened to be a sharper sports better. But most of the time there was nothing. So about three, four weeks into this, I realized what was happening. I'm like, I don't have anybody to bet these numbers. So I don't need, we weren't on the screen and we didn't have anyone sharp there. So I just basically decided I'm going to run this completely wild and I'm just going to make the numbers whatever the hell I want. And until somebody was there to tell me otherwise, the screen is irrelevant. So if I wish some of you guys could see what I had on the screen down there compared to what was out there, because I had the advantage of knowing, working with the guys in Las Vegas at Cantor, of how they moved games that Billy would bet. So when they moved on the screen, I knew, I knew who bet it. So I had that in my pocket. And so I could move those games knowing I didn't want to take a bet on that side. But anything public, like an NFL favorite, say you'd have an NFL favorite that was around seven, that the sharper guys would like the dog. It'd be five and a half, six on Sunday. I'd be at seven or even seven and a half, and I wouldn't have anyone there uh, to bet me. Uh, one of the things I would do is the Thursday night football game. If you weren't in the building by Thursday night, you, you weren't going to be there all weekend. So what I would do is I would figure out what the right side of the Thursday or what the sharper side of the Thursday night game was from the bets that came in in Las Vegas. And then I would lean my number that way to where if an Arbor was there, he would bet it. And if I knew that I didn't take a bet on that arbable side on Thursday for the Thursday night game, I could do whatever the hell I want all weekend and nobody was there to do it. And that was a huge advantage for me. And uh, in the, I was there for five months. We held 13 and a half percent while I was there because I could do whatever the hell I want. It was no sharp money at all. So it was, it was crazy. There was a game, there was a Sunday night football game, Denver against New England when both of those teams were incredible. Uh, the game opened Denver three, two and a half, three, and it closed like pick or New England one. Uh, we closed Denver three and there was nobody there to bet New England. Uh, so there was, you know, enormous, enormous middles to be had if anybody went down there. But no, it was uh, just taught me like if nobody's going to make me adhere to the screen or be within what you would call market, then I don't have to be. Such a unique time. Um uh, in the business, probably one of the few last times that you could actually run a joint like that. Maybe there still are somewhere, some places in the Caribbean um, and, and around there. I'm pretty sure they are. I see some guys posting tickets online with some astronomical pricing still out there. So you never know. But 
um, life in the Bahamas. How was that? When you, when you got that offer, uh, you're still single at this point. Yeah. And like, it was a huge pay increase and it was like a no brainer for me. It was, you know, almost a, almost a hundred percent raise from what I was making. Uh, so it was, it was, and I didn't have a wife or a daughter. So it was, there was no thought involved. It was just a yes. Uh, they originally told me I was going for a year. I ended up being there for like five and a half months. Uh, they brought me back because it just wasn't a lot of handle down there. And there was tons in Las Vegas. So they trade, they sent the newer guy down there and they brought me back. Um, and I tell you what, from being down there for six months and then moving back, I learned to appreciate uh, things like I was never so excited to sit in traffic again because uh, I didn't have a car down there and I had to rely on you know, the girls working out front in the book to bring me to the grocery store every few weeks or it, yeah, it was just, uh, it was wild. It was just a different, completely different environment. Just kind of kept to myself. Mostly walked to work, walked home, didn't do much, uh, other than work, but yeah, it was, uh, an experience. I, you know, glad I didn't last much longer than it did, but I wouldn't trade it for anything. Beautiful. Would you ever vacation with your family in the, in the Bahamas and the Atlantis ever? Having nothing to do with me being there. I just hate the beach in general. So Okay, no. gotcha. Gotcha. <laughs> gotcha. Um, okay. So you're you're back now and um you know you're still at Canada. Now Canada, of course, now we're talking 2014-ish, has lost the luster. Um or, or is is, is it, it's it's just on its way down, um, not taking the bets the, the limits they used to take. Um, how was that? You know what I mean? How how was you know uh, that adjustment and um, when, when when did you say, listen, I got to get out of here before this ship starts sinking? Yeah, you know, and a lot of it was I like the guys in the back room, but then you end up getting you, you kind of end up getting to the point where, you know, they're having upper management is having you do things that just don't make sense from a bookmaking perspective. Um and just negative EV stuff for us, giving us no chance in the long run to hold as high as we could. Um, there's just a lot of things that I didn't care for. Uh, I won't go into the details, but it, it's, it was just time to go. Uh, the morale was on a scale of one to 10. It was as close to a one as you could be. And it wasn't anybody in the rooms in the risk offices doing it was a bunch of like, cause it was mostly the same risk office as it was a few months, a few years prior. And everybody was great. It was just, uh, you know, as they always say, it's always the trickle down, start from the top kind of stuff. And it was just time to move on. And, and I didn't really know what I was going to do or where I was going to go. Um, and then, uh, Frank Kunovic, who was, you know, a guy I used to work for at Bally's, who was the, the manager of at Bally's in Paris, who, you know, I'm still friendly with great, great guy. Uh, he was the sportsbook manager at Caesars, and he, you know, we'd always we go to dinner a couple times, a couple times a year just to catch up. And he would always like, you know, I'm going to come ask you, like, when we finally get mobile and want to get bigger, like, I'm probably going to come ask you to come, you know, come help. And I was like, okay. And eventually, like, it got to the point where I started asking him. I was like, hey, like, when when is this happening? So it finally happened, and I went there. Uh, end of July, beginning of August of 2017. And then that became, you know, his number one thing was to me was we're losing a lot of handle. 
we need to get the market share back. And I said, well, I can definitely get you handled. That is one thing I can surely get is handled. So I, you know, it, it just becomes a slow process getting people to, to believe that, you, you know, you kind of, you, you're doing the right thing and trying to change a culture that has existed for a long time. And uh, that in and of itself was a challenge, but you know, you get everybody there on board and you, you get them to start believing in, in what you're doing and, and, it worked out great. I, I think Caesars uh, became pr- pretty relevant, uh, you know, probably 2018 late by football season of 2018. I think we were up there with some of the other more respected books in the city with, you know, product we offered uh, fair hold percentages on, you know, multi-way markets, future markets, taking fair bets, um, trying not to throw anyone out. You know, you, sometimes you just, Sometimes you just had to do what you had to do, but uh, you know, I, I think uh, I think change, things change for the better, and it was a really good step for me in my career, and nothing but good things to say. Beautiful. When you say trying to have to do what you had to do, what, give me a scenario where you had to do what you had to do. So, like, I used to have to, without getting into too much, the way the accounting was done there was not optimal. Um, cause you're running several properties and it's, they wouldn't, everybody, people wanted to, anybody who won, they just wanted to get rid of when I would say to them, okay, so we have this guy that's betting a nickel on college basketball totals and he's beating us for 9%. He's running us over. But if we throw him out, does that same action they're going to, you're just going to have a guy that doesn't use his card that sits in the book and he's going to bet the same totals. And if you get a rogue supervisor there, might give him two dimes or three dimes and the limit is a dime. And I'm not going to know who that bet is coming from. So maybe I only move that total a point or a point and a half instead of two and a half or three points. So now I get a second bet for a dime or two. So we go from 145 to 142. And if we left this guy here, we'd be 500 high. And if we throw this guy out, we'll be 3,000 high. And trying to explain that to them was difficult. And it didn't matter. And I wasn't going to win. So every six or eight weeks, uh, my boss and I would have to you know, sit down and go through all these players. And I would have to... I basically would have to throw out a handful of players every couple of months to keep them happy. And I knew that if I decided who I was going to throw out, it at least allowed me to decide who was going to go and not someone else. Um, So that was, I thought being a little bit proactive there was better than, because there were plenty of players that, like, I want this information. I want you to bet with us. I want to know what, you know, if I get a big decision on the other side, if I'm okay gambling to it, or if I need to write a bet on the other side. And mm. that's stuff that I don't like to go in blind. Like, if I don't get a sharp bet on either side, do I really want to need this game on Sunday for 150000 I don't know. But mm. if I have a sharp bet on the other side or two sharp bets on the other side, I'll need it for whatever. Because, you know, I don't want to dump off a decision when you know, winning players already have have played that side. So 
yeah, that was always, uh, that was a challenge, but I, you know, I did the best I could and, and, you know, wanted to run as fair of a place as I possibly could have. I think you made a great point, uh, Jeff. It's kind of like, you know, it's better to deal with the devil that you know than the devil that you don't know. Um, and, uh, you know, like you said, if, if you have control of the situation, um, that's, that's going to be better in the long run. So the, the upper management that, that kind of forced you, because this was notorious before William Hill took over Caesars, you know, Joe Asher would have his Wednesday meetings, and this was documented. Dave Purdom did a whole ESPN thing about that, and he would have his Wednesday meetings where they would have to kick people out. Um, who's, who's getting kicked out this week? So it wasn't six to eight weeks. It was weekly over there. Um, and that's just the culture. And, and, you know, I know Caesars, I know some of my runners way back when then they were on the blacklist or whatever it was, they couldn't bet. It's a shame. That's kind of uh, propagated throughout most of the town. Um, Cause that, there was at one point, you know, in the, uh, you know, when, when Caesars was prestigious and when it was, um, you know, come one, come all was the best, was the best book in town at one point. Um, you know, uh, in the, in the, in the heyday, um, what happened? Like, you know what I mean? What kind of, did, you know, just, just your opinion did, the, did these bosses that you have without, you know, you don't have to name names, but did these bosses get talked by somebody or did they not believe in, in your feeling of, Hey, listen, it's better to give this guy a nickel. It's okay. I could use this information. You know, I don't really, I can't speak for them and, and I don't know what they looked at, but I just tried to make my own hypothesis. And it was, you know, I would assume executives at various casinos, not just sports book, you know, in any department, they're looking at spreadsheets and they're looking at line items and they're saying, okay, where can we improve on our bottom line? And they're going to see, you know, the mobile app in the sports betting is not making a lot of money directly in and of itself. It doesn't have the ability, like I would try to sell them, look, by them betting us two dimes, we're saving other bets mm. over the counter that we, we would get. Like you can't quantify on a spreadsheet bets I save because the group that, you know, myself and my group made good moves from intelligent players that if we didn't make a good move, we might've got another bet. Whereas if we have this good information, we can move it strong enough to where we're not going to get another bet. And that Beautiful. bet never, that bet never hits a spreadsheet. Beautiful. But the only way you can look at it is how is the bottom line at the end of the year. And, you know, that's not something that an executive is going to understand. It's not that they can't understand, but they just look at a number and say, okay, well, this mobile app's only holding half a percent. Why do we should just get rid of it? Well, yeah. You got to look at the bigger picture, in my opinion, because that mobile app holding a half a percent is causing the counter app to hold more so Correct. than uh, than it was, and they just don't see it as like kind of like a consulting fee or whatnot, where um, they just look at it in isolation. Whereas you said it's part of the bigger picture, so I think that that's important for any bookmakers listening out there. Um, you know, having and and we're going to get into the circa model and then how you guys are uh, were just completely. Uh, Getting, bringing Las Vegas back to its glory. So, um, okay, so you're, you're the director now. You know, Sir, uh, Caesars, like you said, 18, 19. Rex Byers, a good friend of mine, um, worked side by side with you in my intro. Um, Rex says, um, he goes, man, I'm working with Jeff Davis, and, and let me tell you, I've worked with so many people, and he's worked with legends in the business, guys, some of the best of the best. He goes, 
Um, Jeff Davis, man, I sitting next to him is the biggest pleasure in the world. I've learned so much. He's one of the best I've ever worked with. And I'm like, really? One of the best? Are you, are you like, that's a big statement because you've worked with some of the best. He goes, I'm telling you, Spank, that guy knows his shit inside out. He's incredible. So um, all the credit to you, Jeff. Uh, you know, I, I know Rex is a nice Kentucky gentleman. And, um, and but, you know what I mean? He's a little bit rough around the edges, too. He doesn't give compliments. Um, he'll tell you how he feels. So um, um, oh, that's such a, a nice uh, testimonial. Um, and, and all the credit to you, Jeff. I appreciate it. Now, Rex was uh, Rex was great to have because you could, like, it was always tough to find, you know, guys that, we're good at this and had been in it for a long time are all generally speaking. And obviously this doesn't go for everybody, but they're older guys. A lot of them married. They, they want to work days and they want to go home to their families. Well, it was great having a guy as knowledgeable as Rex that wanted to work as late as possible. And it fit perfect because I wanted to work as early as possible. And it was just having him there at night was, was good to know that there was, somebody who really not only knew what they were doing, he was doing his best to try to win the company money. And ultimately that's what you want as a director is, you know, he was putting his heart and soul into trying to beat the players and like, okay, who's betting this? Where am I going to move it? We used to talk about that stuff all the time. And man, it was wild. We used to sit uh, during the, right when everything shut down, uh, you know, early spring of 2020, uh, we were under contract with ESPN and we had to do a lot of stuff for them that we wouldn't have done otherwise. But we had to, knowing that a lot of these things would get canceled, they wanted us to do college football season wins. And, you know, that's obviously a lot of work, but we didn't have anything else to do. And him and I, we, our office was in, was in the basement of Harris and we used to sit there and there was maybe, I bet you there weren't 20 people in the whole building, a couple of janitors, maybe a surveillance guy, a couple of security guards and us sitting in the basement. And because the, the casino was closed, they turned off the direct TV subscription. So all we're sitting there is in the back is, you know, a couple of computers and we put some music on and we sat there and just ground through college football and for hours and hours and days and days because we didn't have anything else to do. And if nothing else, it was a fun exercise to sit there and build spreadsheets and pick each other's brains about opinions on teams. And that like kind of that whole experience taught me a lot about like what Rex was all about. Awesome. Uh, great stuff. Great stuff. Um, okay. So let's get into now, um, you know, when, uh, when, you know, obviously when the William Hill takeover uh, merger, you kind of, um, you know, I'm pretty sure you, 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 once you heard the rumblings there, um, writing was on the wall. And um, again, you know, I mean, the ship's kind of sinking or not. I don't want to say sinking because, you know, Caesars is, in, is, is always going to be there. But, the, um, you know, and I know Craig now runs run, runs the thing. And I know I, I know Craig for years and, you know, from Don Best. So I don't want to say anything bad about Caesars. I, I think Craig is great. But um but talk to me about, you know, um, uh, you know, the decision to go to Circa. How does that come about? So I met with Matt and uh, Derek. Uh, it was, July, I want to say it was July 4th of, uh, might have been 2019. 
And, you know, I met with him. I spent the night, like, sitting at the long bar, having drinks with him. And it, it was a lot of fun. But I also knew, like, I wasn't, I wanted to go work at Serga, but I, I couldn't, I wasn't in a position where I could really leave yet. And I knew ultimately when this merger happened, I didn't really know what was going to happen, but I knew that the Circa business model was and working for Derek and Matt was what I ultimately wanted to do. And it was more a matter of when than, than if at that point. And, you know, I, I, I kind of told them like, yeah, I'd love to come on. I, j- I just can't do it right now. And Matt and I, w- we stayed in conversation for a long time off and on and, and then, you know, we kind of reconnected and I met up with him and, and Chris Bennett, maybe uh, it, it was probably, you know, right or, soon after uh, that shutdown, a period of time, I was talking, you know, just talked to you guys about Rex. Um, and I told him like, yeah, I'll come like as soon as this merger goes through, I'm you know, 99% sure I'm going to come aboard and you know, we did our due diligence and I interviewed Willie Hill and, you know, they were great. And I met Nick Bogg and I went into his office and we chatted for, I don't know, hour, hour and a half about things. And, uh, you know, we got along great, great guy. And, and I just ultimately decided that Circa was the place for me. And, and I tell you what, I, I couldn't have made a better decision. I, I absolutely love uh, where I am now and what Matt's vision is. And, and it just the fit is perfect. Beautiful. Um, initial impressions of, of, of Derek and, um, you know, and, and, and how he just supports Matt and, and, and wants to be the, um, it's just amazing. Like I, I think when, when I look at, you know, the circuit itself, you know, a lot of people say, you know, they have a casino and then they have a sports book off to the side or as, as part of the casino where I think, you know, the circuit is a sports book with a casino off to the side. It's, uh, it's just absolutely amazing. Like, only Derek Stevens, who loves sports betting so much and who's so into it, you know, can can think of this vision and design this. And um, it just to me is just a, a, such an, you know, as as a sports better, like my God, it's it's heaven on earth. Um, but um, seeing that vision, any initial impressions and, and uh, of Derek and and. and you know, how, what was there a, a certain a time that you could think of like, man, I definitely want to be here. These are the guys for me. Like, honestly, the first time I met him um, again, it was like, I, th- I think it was July 4th, 2019. I could be wrong, but I think that's when it was. And Circa was just beginning to be built. Like the hole was dug and the basic foundation was there. Um, you, you know, maybe the, the first few floors of the hotel had the beams put up and he met, you know, he met up with myself and one other guy and he gave us a tour of the property and, and it was, you know, you just knew ha- having never met Derek before, you just knew what it meant to him. And I was like, yeah, I want to work for this guy. And, you know, it's been nothing but nothing but the best. And I just, the vision and, how we, you know, everything is growing slowly, but you can see the, just trying to see the bigger picture of, of how big we can be, you know, in, in the next few years and, and taking limits and not throwing people out and not being afraid to take a bet. And instead of when somebody comes to the counter and asks for a bet, that's, you know, a pretty big size bet, instead of thinking, you know, should we cut this guy down? What can we cut him down to? It's why should, you know, we look to take the bet. And that to me is, 
is something that, you know, most other places don't do. And it's up to, you have to have a really talented bookmaking staff to run this business model. And I can't imagine that anywhere, anywhere else on there is has as talented of a staff as, as we do. And if there is, I would, I really would love to meet them. Um, I, I think, you know, let's talk about how Circa kind of differentiates itself. Like you just said, you guys will take a bet from anybody. Um, I think post limit sheets, let's go back because listen, you were at Canner and, and Canner, listen, I, you know, I, I, I know what the limits were. It was 40,000 on Tuesday at, 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 uh, at 8 a.m. That was the limit. You know what I mean? It was known. Everybody that was betting there was known. This is what we're taking. You could always ask for more, but you are guaranteed to get this amount. You could be whoever, you know, whatever it is. That's the, that's the number you were guaranteed to get. Circa poster limits. They make a limit sheet. Okay. Who does there, and does anybody in town, and maybe I'm, I don't know, maybe somebody else does that, but does anybody in town do that? And if, and if not, why not? You know, I don't make my way inside books very often, but I know in the past, uh, you know, in the last couple of years, stations used to make mm-hmm. a, have put post their limits um, on their sheet. But I also knew that like, once you became a known sharper player, they would make little rules for you to make it more difficult, but you always got the limit. Um, but yeah, like having a limit, that's important for, for, you know, the professional type betters, they want to be able to know how much they can get on a given market or a given bet at any point. And it's just being transparent is such a good way to do business. And, you know, we're not going to tell you, sit here and tell you, we're going to take a hundred thousand every single market on every single thing on every single day. But we put it in the app too. It's just not just on the sheet. Like you can open the app and in every game, like, what the limit is on the side, the total and the money line. If you go in the app, hundred thousand on Sunday, type in your one zero 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 zero, it hits send and, and you're good. And and that's just just think it's the right way to do business because there's no there's no tricks, there's no there's no secret anything. It's just here we are. This is the product we offer. We offer a fair product, we offer great hold percentages, we and it doesn't matter how much you win or how sharp you are, this is the limit. Please come bet it with us. Like we run a business model where we want you to come bet it with us versus a lot of places where it becomes kind of adversarial where it's like player versus bookmaker. And it's like a natural, uh, you know, I don't want to use the word hatred, but you know, you're against each other where, yeah, we're still trying to beat you. Like you're trying to beat us, but we need you to bet with us. Like that's our motto. Like, the more we write minus dollar 10, the better chance we have to win over the course of time. And by us taking a hundred thousand on NFL sides on Sunday, that's more than a lot of places take. And you know, that's what you're going to get. Like it says it in the app, hundred thousand, like come bet it. It's, it's funny because you said it's good for professionals to know that, but everybody, like, there's any, any table you sit at a casino uh, any slot machine you sit at, the, the limit is there. The amount that you could bet is clearly posted, a, a, a min and a max. So, like, why wouldn't it be for the sports book? It just, I just, it, it's, it's amazing how um, it's in the minority on how, you know, people don't want to post limits because it kind of uh, forces you to say, oh, oh, it's posted now. I have to take it. 
And, you know, because then, oh, no, I can't reduce it. It's already written there. Where you guys are not looking to reduce the limit, uh, Metcalf is, is on the other end. He's always looking to increase the limit. Like you said, you're trying to find a way to be able to give a guy more than what you're, uh, what, what you're posted, which is just a testament to the thinking. It's completely opposite thinking of how the industry is. Um, and all the credit to you guys, all, all the credit to Matt. I know Matt pushes, pushes you guys and pushes the envelope hard. And, um, you know, um, and, and, you know, when I had Chris Spennett on the podcast, he knew like, you know, Matt, he, he you know, he mentioned that Matt is his vision and he's definitely, he, he pushes enough to know that we can handle it. And again, it sometimes it feels as if you're out in the deep end without, a, without a raft, but, uh, but you learn it's sink or swim and you guys, you know, uh, you book every sharp in the world. Um, and, and, and even though you guys are in Nevada, um, believe me, every sharp in the world finds a way to get down at Circa, given all you're in a few states, not just in Nevada, but, and, um, and, and you're booking every sharp and it's just, um, it's, it's, if you could hold Matt recently published, you guys are holding 3%. If you guys can hold 3% with every sharp in the world, just imagine what would happen with increasing your recreational action. Um, it's just, it's, it's only could get better from here. Yeah. And to your point, like that was one of, you know, when I started, I'd been there a couple of weeks and like, you know, learning the business model from coming from different things was my biggest challenge for a brief period of time. And once you trust that, like Matt always wants you to take a bet and always wants you to raise the limits when you can. And there was a game, it was a college basketball game like two weeks ago, might have a week ago. LSU in Kentucky and, you know, uh, major conference games, three dimes in the morning, five dimes at 10 AM and then 10 dimes at noon. Um, you know, if there's a major injury, maybe we we're, we're we'll, we'll be one limit behind until we get the information, but for the most part, it's 10 dimes. So that morning we had people lay one, one, one and a half, two and two and a half. And people took three and a half, three and two and a half. So, and that was all before like 8.30 in the morning. So I now know that two is the correct number in this game. And there's no doubt in my mind that I'm willing to take any bet within reason, plus two or minus two. So I went to 10,000 on the game before the limits would generally go to 5,000. And we went to 10,000, I went to 20,000. Because the information is says, okay, we've got intelligent people on both sides of this game. And when people are laying and taking numbers so close to each other, the range of what the number is supposed to be is so small that why not write a double limit bet or a triple limit bet at a number that you have the utmost confidence is correct. So that's something that I'm always now in the last few weeks, even really trying to get myself and the guys to do is like, you take bets on both sides from people with an opinion, not just necessarily an arbor chasing the screen, but you've got two people with an opinion that win and they have opposition, raise the limit. Like, let's take more. Because the only way somebody told me this a long time ago, I don't even remember who it was, is you can't win money if you don't write bets. And ultimately, it's like, let's write bets. So, yeah, always looking to raise the limits when, when there's two way action from you know, respected players. Now, it, you know, just to think, you know, the soft book model, because what you're describing obviously just makes so much sense, right? Imagine 
Jeff, if you will, just try to put you in a scenario where you would, you know, you, you were running a book and, and your number, you, you wouldn't have a chart. Your chart would mean nothing. Um, and you would not, your number essentially was a consensus of a Chris and a pinnacle number. Like, you know, how, what are the benefits of that? I'm not trying to knock it, but what are the benefits of that? And, and what are the pitfalls given what you're doing now? You know, it's the benefits are, are obvious. Like we just discussed, like if you can get to a point where you have confidence in what the number is supposed to be, then you, you should be able to take whatever you want. Uh, the negative to that is like it kind of given we take limits of any size, you always have to be once the limits get to a certain point, you always have to be within a range of what the number is at other places that take big limits or you're going to instantaneously get a large bet that you may not necessarily want. So you've got to be really careful on a Sunday NFL when the limits are 100,000, you can't take your eyes off the screen. If you take your eyes off the screen for 20 seconds, it can get really bad if something moves or something happens. So it's, uh, yeah, that's the negative is, is that, is you just have to be aware of where everyone is that has a line that matters. And if you stray a little bit from it, you're going to get a bet. And you got to make sure that the side you stray from is the side you want to bet on. But, but I'm talking about autopilot because this, a lot of these softbook models, nobody's moving a number. Everything's on a market consensus. So there is no stray. Um, it's on autopilot. There's no talent at all. It's just an algorithm. Uh, I guess the talent is writing the correct algorithm, but there's no physical human really um, doing too much work. Um, you know what I mean? You know, if Chris and Pinnacle move, the line automatically moves, essentially. So is that, you know, I, I just want to hear, you know, you say the positives, I get it. The positives is you can't really, you're not going to be strained too much. What would you say the negatives are of that model? So in my time at Caesars, you know, toward the end, we were running, my office was running seven states. So we outsourced a lot of the things to a third-party company, uh, European-run company. Um that we just didn't have the manpower to run it all. And one of the things that we outsourced were uh, game like player props. And a lot of that, we did a lot of player props and a lot of games because ESPN wanted us to. And we, there were times where they would hang these numbers because that's the number they would see in the market we would get absolutely blasted on a side and they would never move it because, well, place A has 48 and a half and place B has 48 and a half and place C has 48 and a half. So 48 and a half is the number and we're not going to move it. Well, that's not what bookmaking is. Like if you take a bet over or under 48 and a half on a prop and it's not 20 minutes to post, you're going to move that shit. Like you, that's not the number that person who makes that bet for a nickel or a dime on that prop, whatever you're taking, they're telling you that 48 and a half is not the number. And I, I've learned from my years of experience that ultimately booking props is just trying to write as close to two way action as possible uh, because they can get out of hand really fast. And when, if you're taking multiple limit bets from intelligent players on one side, you're just not going to like the book. You're just not going to win. 
Um, so that was one of the things about the softbook model and that approach that's, that's just no good because ultimately if they're betting over 48 and a half, then I don't want to be at 48 and a half. I want to be at 50 and a half or 51 and a half or 50 and a half over a dollar 20. Uh, and you should be there after one bet unless you know that the player is just a complete square. But if somebody's betting a prop two days out, they're not square. So that to me is the biggest negative is like, you got to, it's not about putting it up and sitting on your hands and hoping for the best. You got to manage those numbers. And when you take a bet from somebody that knows what they're doing, you have to write a bet on the other side. You got to do whatever it takes to, to write that bet on the other side. This is a great, great point here. So I think, I think, because again, a lot of bookmakers listen to this um, that are kind of learning and all this stuff. And, and I think you made such a great point. I think charting, because that algorithm has to include your chart. It has to. You can't just think that a market consensus number is the right number because the sharps, and I'm saying this to my own detriment, but I'm just, you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's whatever. It's pretty obvious. It's pretty logical. But, uh, you know, you have to, your, your algorithm needs to include your chart. It must include your chart. Don't think that just because, like you said, book A, B, and C have that same line after you've written a bet, two bets, three bets on that number, that that's the right number just because A, B, and C have it. Your chart needs to determine that. Book to your chart. And it's it's like you talk to anybody, like like how, how you know, any old school bookmaker, any bookmaker that has – have these guys are not booking to a chart like imagine having to move numbers where you don't know how much money you have on 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 both a and b how would you know what to do um i tell you what like now so our software has like a place you can put notes in every game mm -hmm. and in the football we keep a pretty detailed chart of all the bets throughout the week. And, you know, it helps us follow along and, and try to decide where we want to position ourselves. The college basketball, there's so many games. We don't really have the time to build like a 70 game chart every single day. Um, it's it just, it's, and then be able to like get to the chart and type it all in. So we're just, I'm just putting in initials and little scribbles uh, to know where everyone is. And it's all readable. And there, sometimes there are so many bets on a total in a college basketball game. I run out of characters and I've already abbreviating it so much. Like if, you know, Joe Smith bets over 132 in the college basketball game, I'll go in and put JS small O 32. And I know what it is. And by 830 in the morning, sometimes I'm out of characters and I can't make any more notes. Yeah. So now I have to, I stopped making notes, but if I've made that many notes, I've kind of already determined, okay. Where like, you want to be. Yeah. Like is over or under the right side here. And you never really know, but once you've been booking, as long as some of us have been booking, you kind of just get a feel for, okay, I want to need over. Or I want to need under. What do I need to do when it happens? Gotcha. I think you even, you, you took it a step further. When I say charting, I'm, you're talking about, you know, the note taking, which is a, a higher level charting. I'm talking about these people don't even know how much money they have on one side versus the other, let alone who actually bet it. They're not even charting the money, I don't think. Because what, what, what competent bookmaker 
like you said, on a prop, everybody that's going to bet these props for the most part, you know, two days out, like you said, is sharp, right? So how is, you know, even if you just move the number on money, um, like you said, with props, you kind of want to write two-way action, right? So they're not even, there's no money. They're not moving the, the action, the, the number on money, which I just think is just, you know, it, because oh, why? Because who cares what our what our money chart is? Uh, book A, B, and C have that number. It's got to be right. Yeah, um, it's it's wild to think that, but I, I think that's the case. And sometimes, like, it's always a it's always a game and a challenge to know, like, when you take recreational money, like, and they're betting a market number. You know, ninety nine out of one hundred times, you're probably not going to move it. But sometimes they're betting into a market where the limits like their bet size is so much greater than a limit bet. You have to move it. Yeah. Well, you don't have to move it, but like a small move makes sense because you have to like respect the money at some point. Um, and protect you know, yourself and protect yourself from catastrophe. Correct. Cause you don't want, if you, cause what can happen. So let's say you take a recreational bet on a college basketball total and you know, if you look at the board, everyone doesn't ever have 137. There's always a 36 and a half and a 37 and a half. Somebody might even have a 38. And so let's say you're at 37 and the places that matter are at 37 and somebody bet you over 37. But do you know as a recreational player and you're like, I'm not going to move it because you bet a market number. Well, the problem you run into with that is, well, if 45 minutes later, somebody with a that wins bets you over 137, you're buried. You can't do anything about it. You're just so upside down. It's no good. So you're better off just making a small move, going to 37 and a half, and then having you see somebody with a brain bet you under 37 and a half right away. You just go right back and you know and you have the utmost confidence that you can book that entire bet. And it's like a lot of the times it's just about finding resistance and finding, okay this guy likes the other side. Okay. We're good in eating this. Or you maybe you move it at a half and a half an hour, 45 minutes go by and nobody bets it. You're like, this isn't good. And then maybe you move it another half. Somebody writes you a bet and you can go back. But like ultimately finding resistance is, is of the utmost importance because a lot of the times it's the only bet on the whole game. If they bet you over on some obscure game that, you know, n- nobody's bet either side you, you usually feel confident gambling, but you might not because there's been no information to tell you which one is right. So finding resistance is so helpful. I love it. So awesome. So awesome. Um, is there a point like in the middle of the day? Cause I know you're, you're booking college basketball for the most part. Is there a point in which, you know, Chris was notorious for doing this for college football. And I, I love, by the way, your whole chart thing. Our office does the same thing because from day to day, there might be a different person working. So we kind of keep a chart to have, you know, Chinese Mike might need to tell Luke what, why, why we're on this, what, what posi- why we're on this position or why we're not, or to keep an eye on this or, or, or so from day to day, we also have detailed charts, but like you said, college basketball, the charts, our chart system where we're typing different uh, lines and stuff is not used because it's all bet on the same day. So I kind of uh, relate to what you're saying. Um, but my, my, what I was going to get into is, is there, Chris was no bet. Chris was notorious for like on Wednesday for college football. They would just go right down the line and just move everything. 
um, to try to get that little resistance. Say, you know what? Okay, I'm looking at it now. Let me just move this a half point. And think, every single number, for the most part, would move. Um, do you ever just do that just to see, okay, listen, let me just see here because, like, I haven't written a bet in a while. Um, I want to just move this and see what happens, um, see if I get that resistance. Is there ever a time to do that for either college football, college basketball, any sport? You know, just want to put it out there. So one thing that we do is, like, so I'm in the office 435 o'clock a.m. Pacific most days. And you're really, really busy from 536 to like 8, 830 most of the time. And then some days like today, today it was busy till like 1030. But by the time it's like 11 and I like I'll have lunch. I don't want to say I'm cooked, but I've, you know, my I'm not as sharp as I was at six o'clock in the morning because I just. So my brain's kicked in for five hours, just moving games and pounding buttons and just trying to keep up with all the action. So when the afternoon guy comes in at one o'clock, who's going to book the college basketball all night, we have a 15 minute conversation about the relevant games that did a lot of handle, or if we have a runaway game, or if we have a good two way game and he's fresh. So he'll go through everything and say, Oh, I don't like where we are in this first half, or I think we should be a half a point lower on this total. So it gives you like that fresh set of eyes um, that maybe miss something that or find something that you missed because you were booking 60 games all morning and he's fresh. And that's like, that's a huge help. Uh, another thing I, I booked the college football totals most of the time during the season, map books, the sides. So when I come in in the morning, I got to go through all the bets um, from the night before on totals. And, or if I was off the day before, I got to go through a day and a half of bets. And sometimes, you know, sometimes a point or a point and a half move on a total or a two point move on the total, none are necessarily like the thing I love about this business is there's no right answer. Like you can make a case that a point and a half move is right. And I can make a case that a two point move is right. And we both could have complete merit on why we are right. So maybe. I didn't like somebody's move, so I move at a half a point. It doesn't mean their move was wrong or or no good. I just, in my thought process, has told me, okay, I think a two-point move is better than a point-and-a-half move, and I move it. And, you know, a lot of time it's how the market reacts, where if I want to take an over bet, we're at a number, and we're like a point off a of market, I'm like, well, I don't need to be this far off. I might move it back a half. It's all like, it's all feel. It's not, there's no procedure. Sometimes you just go in and you're like, nah, I don't want to be at 56 and a half. I want to be at 57 and you just move it. Beautiful, man. I, I could talk about this stuff all day. I just, I love it. Um, you have such an influence, the circle line in the market. Um, sometimes we just, you know, see you guys move. Um, are, are there times which you're just moving, like, and, and we see, you know, people just following the move. You have an influence. Um, you're writing a bet a lot of those times. Are there times where you're not writing a bet? Most of the times, yes. Not every time. But a lot of the things is goes back to us wanting to raise limits. And the more bets you write, the easier it or easier is not the right word, the more confidence you can have in raising the limits, because when you write two-way action, you kind of, the goal as the week goes on is to attempt to minimize the range of correct numbers. And 
sometimes we'll be sitting in a number for a while and maybe Matt has an opinion or I have an opinion and we're like, no, let's, let's move this a half and see what happens. And we'll move it a half. And sometimes, sometimes everyone just follows. And a lot of the stuff, like, like a lot of the college bowl stuff specifically, we just destroy the market on some of these things. Like we'll see information that comes out on Twitter and we need, it's so important to be first and like, trust what you read. Um, like the, the Hawaii Memphis game, an article came out in San Francisco paper where all the players were ripping the coach and they all hated him and they didn't want to play for him anymore. So it was, you know, the number is like three, three and a half everywhere. We just went to six because they don't want to play anymore. And we just write a bunch of six and five and a half. And, you know, 10 minutes later, the whole board's at five and a half, six. And now once the board catches up to five and a half, six, and we know once anyone with a brain reads this, no one is going to bet Hawaii because none of no one wants to play. And in bowls, it's not about X's and O's. It's about who wants to play. And so now we'll, we'll go even higher. It's like, it's this weird process where, you move it to right bets. And then when everyone else catches up, you move it again. And it, you haven't even taken any bets. And you're just, sometimes we just, it just destroys the market. And sometimes you put yourself in a great position and sometimes you don't. And, you know, with the guys that we have back there, we, if we, we talk about it and we trust our gut. Like I, I just have confidence that we're going to do the right thing more than we do the wrong thing. And, and like uh, that Hawaii Memphis game, of course, it didn't end, it end up getting played and it closed like uh, nine and a half, 10 or whatever it closed. It might even have closed higher than that. But, you know, we wrote a bunch of money you know, plus three and a half, plus four, plus five, whatever it was. And, and it's all stuff you just create on your gut of where the number's going to go. How good is that feeling when you're writing a game plus four and, and it's going towards 10? <laughs> You know, no better, no better feeling actually as a, like specifically from booking is like trying to write bets. And that's in any sport is like, if you get a piece of information that you think or know is valuable, just be first. Don't wait for the bet. Just write the bet on the other side. I mean, winning the bet is a whole nother story that feels even better, but you know that like in a money line sport, if you write a bunch of minus minus one fifty and it closes minus one thirty eight. Like that feels so good because of the limits we take. We take so many bets that you can't do anything with that it feels really good when you write a bunch of bets that end up end up being bad bets and good for us. And the more times, like that's our job. That's what we have to do. Try to get people to write bets that aren't going to be closed because that's just going to give us the best chance to win. And when you're booking the sharp of the sharp, you just have to use the scalpers to your advantage when you can. You know, if, if the game's painted five and you just hang six and a half, you're going to get that immediately. You just have to be right. And you have to know that it's going to close north of that number. How long will it take you to write a bet um, just by being off market and, you know, given your current clientele? How many seconds does that number need to be hung for you? To oh, write God. Um, not 30. Mm. Instant. Not, I mean, you know, as long as it takes somebody to, type in their password and push the button. Um, it, yeah. Cause everybody's looking at the screen constantly. So yeah, it's uh, very, very quickly. 
So yeah, we have the ability to, if we want to write a bet, we can write a bet. It's just, do we want to write a bet at the number we'll have to go to, to write the bet? Gotcha. And, um, okay. So, you know, with respect to like, you know, your limit, your, your, let's say you're taking a limit of X, uh, is there a comfort zone on how much you want to be extended um, as a factor of X, um, you know, or, or are you just putting all that, all the square money, um, you know, an old bookmaker would tell me, you know what I mean? There's, there's certain players, they won't even enter our chart. So they, he could book a million dollars from a guy and, my my guys, like the lines managers, won't even know that bet was written. Like that's how that's how they look at it. Where the charter now again, this guy has balls of steel. You know, notorious one of the best bookmakers ever to live and stuff. It's different, and I'm not saying you guys don't have balls of steel. I'm just saying, you know, is there a time in which you're like, okay, listen, even though there's a recreational guy here, we still want to limit our exposure a little bit. Is there a certain factor of X, X being the house limit, that you're saying, you know what, uh, let me move this a little bit, try to get some back? You know, no, every game's different because ultimately it matters who's betting you. I mean, if a recreational guy makes a big bet for, you know, multiple times the limit, and then a sharp guy piles on top, like you need to, you can't need that for the whole amount. Like that's, that's not good. Um, but again, it's, it's really just a feel. It's an art form. It's not a science. Like, yeah, there are fundamental things to do and don't, but it's not a science. Every, all two game, every game is different. And it, it's the same as like, how much do I move this when somebody makes a limit bet on this total? Well, where were we in the market? when he bet it like were we a market number were we a half a point better for the customer or were we a half a point worse so the move isn't always this the same person can bet the same limit on the same market on a different game and the move might be different even if it's the first bet the move might be different and so it's the same as this limit question how much to need something for you kind of just got to be in the moment and you talk about it like between Chris Bennett, Matt Metcalf, and myself, and a few other guys, like, you just like, how much are we okay needing this for? And you just kind of know, like, ah, that's too much. Let's write a bet or not. There's no real 3X, 5X, 10X, whatever it is. Um, yeah, it's just, are we good needing this game for X? Yes. Okay, let's do it. Or no, let's write a bet. It's, it's very case by case. Gotcha. There's no risk, pro, there's no like hard cap risk. It's like you said, it's wherever it comes, it comes. You guys are, you're okay with the roller coaster ride. Yeah. Yeah. For the most part, obviously there are times you get to a point like, ah, I don't want to need this for this much and you write it. But again, it's, it's too, it's too case by case to be able to say, okay, if we need yeah. this for 10 X the limit, we have to write a bet on the other side. Because if, 10, if we're 10x the limit high, but some person who's a 6% lifetime winner is on the other side, we're going to want to need it for the whole thing. Yeah, fair enough. Okay, let's talk about the futures because I know you're notorious uh, and, and you, you you handle a lot of the golf futures and, and, and do a lot of the futures um, and do a lot of the golf. You, you do the golf itself, Jeff. 
So you guys are, you know, you're, you're well known for having a lower hold percentage on the futures. How challenging is it to have such a low hold comparable to the rest of the market and, and to keep your, to, you know, keeps you on your toes, obviously. Um, how, how is that? Well, you, you just can't, you can't sleep on it. Number one, you gotta always be in it. So like, I manage the golf futures and I manage the hockey futures and they're very different because a new golf event appears every Monday and it goes off the board every Thursday morning. So you have like a limited window um, to write bets. So obviously the handle is not going to be enormous compared to like these sports that are up for like a calendar year almost where you're just constantly writing bets. So in the golf, you really got to take a long-term view um, because it's, you, you just got to hope the guys that get bet that week don't get there. And you got to just trust that you're not hanging a price that's too good because ultimately over the course of all the tournaments over a couple of years, like if you're hanging reasonably fair prices, you're going to do okay. And if you're hanging bad prices, you're going to lose just like anything else. Whereas, you know, a Super Bowl market or a Stanley cup market or, an NBA futures market, you're writing bets throughout the year. There's tons of handle and handle helps hide mistakes. Um, if you make a mistake, if you sleep on a team or if you over move, you don't think a team's that good and you over move them up and somebody makes you a limit bet. If you write enough business, it can get, it can get hidden. Um, so it's by offering such low hold percentages, you write a lot of, there's just an inherent amount of action that comes because in a sport that has 32 teams, you're probably going to have the best number in the market on like 20 of them, maybe more. So anybody that's shopping that says, okay, I want to bet two dimes on, you know, the Cowboys to win the Super Bowl, we're probably going to have the best number and we're probably going to get the bet. And while it's, you're obviously giving good bets to a lot of people, you're also writing so much handle that, you know, the only way to mitigate futures risk is to write bets on the other teams. So that in and of itself helps you manage uh, the pools. You just have to be on top of it all the time. You can't miss anything. You have to be confident in what the prices should be, because if you're not and you get lazy and you don't look at it for a week, things can happen. And with the limits we take, you know, somebody comes in and bets you to win a hundred thousand or hundred fifty thousand on some team to win a championship at a number that probably shouldn't be there. Like it kind of can put you in a bad spot. So yeah, you just just like everything else we do, you, you just you can't take your eyes off of Twitter. You can't take your eyes off of the bet ticker. You just have to be plugged in all the time. Like you can't, you just can't sleep on what's happening. So let's just say, uh, you know, because I'm just trying to think if I was booking, again, I'm not a bookmaker, but if I was booking like a future book, like, let's just say you're, you're writing action on, 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 on golfer A in matchups. Does that affect how you're going to move? Are you going to move him in the futures uh, right off the right, right away? Or, or you're going to, or, or let's just say vice versa. You write golfer A uh, to win the tournament. Um, are you going to move the line in the matchups? Um, does one affect the other? Are you waiting to write a bet in each individual market? It depends. But like, I believe like, and this might not be everyone's opinion. I think it depends. Cause like, let's say, 
and this is more of a system challenge than a software challenge than anything else. Generally, we, we don't, I don't put up screen matchups. I, I build my own matchups because that makes people have an opinion, bet them. Um, and that tells me a lot. And so if somebody bets a matchup, it could equally be a play on the player they're betting as much as it's a fade on the other guy. So it could be a mistake to lower or shorten the guy they're betting on in the matchup because they might not be betting that guy at all. They might be betting against the other guy, and you don't know that. So also you have the nuance of playing a matchup is, you know, you have the cut equity because, you know, you take a guy like, you know, Tony Finau, who rarely, if ever, wins, but he makes a slew of cuts. Great bet in the matchups, maybe not as good as a, of a bet in the outrights. And then you, you can take a guy like a kid like Matt Wolf, who, you know, has won multiple times in his short career, but he misses a slew of cuts too. So he might be 35 or 40 to one on the board to win. But if you put him in a matchup against another guy that's 35 or 40 to one, he might be a 70 cent dog because he's far more likely to miss the cut. So while they're correlated, I don't think they're as correlated as say a first half to a game market uh, in like a more standard sport. So I think, again, it's a lot of feel and a lot of like, okay, who's making this bet? Do I need to move this? Is anybody else bet it? So yeah, it's again, like anything else I do, it's, it's a case by case basis. Super awesome explanation. Seth, really, really awesome. Um, well, I, I, you know, you just mentioned software uh, uh, challenges. I think that's important. Um, you're writing a bet on the game. You know, how challenging is it to have to move the first half, the first quarter? Um, you know, or are you going to even go as far as moving futures if you have active futures up? Um, you know, um, for that, like, w- w- what kind of work is required to do stuff like that, given, you know, obviously the ideal situation, where is is the software, once you move a game, everything else moves accordingly, depending on your move for the game. Um, how challenging is it to have to move every single thing when you write a bet on a, on a game or vice versa? If you're writing a bet on the first half, does that indicate that you're actually going to move the game as well? You know, I, I joke, but I'm serious. If you can book college basketball with somewhat of uh, aptitude at circus sports in the first three or four weeks of college basketball, you can do anything. Um, <laughs> because that the first couple of weeks, the moves are wild. They're fast and furious. And it's a race to these numbers that are way off. And I don't have time to go through 350 teams and, you know, make totals on all these games. I just don't have time for that. Um, so I just have to know how to book it. And the bets and the moves come so fast and the board is so big the first few weeks that I don't even have time to look at the screen because if I take my eyes off the bet ticker and the software and I look at the screen for four seconds, I miss two bets. And I am just, I've gone through, I think I'm on my third keyboard, uh, you, you know, in the last six months because I beat the life out of the page up, page <laughs> down button uh, for three hours a day. 
Cause you got to, you know, cause they're betting you six ninety two over. And then the next bet is eight Oh four under. And you're just page down, page down. You're just blasting away at keys. And you're almost not even thinking it's autopilot. Like, okay, I'm just moving. And you just move. And then you go to the next game and you move and you just do it. And then you survive it. And then after the two and a half hour barrage, you go back and figure out where you are and then reposition the numbers to say, okay, I need a bet over here. I need a bet under there. Okay. We're good here. Um, but yeah, the first two hours of the day, uh, in the first two to four weeks of college basketball, I don't even have time to look at the screen. I'm just moving. I love it. And you're doing all the, the whole college basketball board by yourself. Do you have any, help? I can do, I could probably do, 40 to 50 games myself. And it's, it's brutal. Uh, I can do it, but it's tough. Like on a Saturday, like this, these Saturdays coming up, we're going to have 110 games. There'll probably be three of us booking the college basketball. Gotcha. Um, but yeah, we'll each take a section of the board, but on a regular, like a Wednesday or a Thursday regular season, when there's 40 games, if we're staffed enough, Obviously, we try to like the last few days we've had we've split the board, uh, you know, and I've had like 20 or 25 games. When you have 20 or 25 games, it's very manageable and you can make educated, thoughtful moves um, and you can make more adjustments on the fly. Whereas when you're booking 50 games by yourself, uh, you're just trying to survive like, OK, don't write three bets on the same side before you write a bet on the other side. That's all you're trying to do. Like you're not even thinking about worrying about numbers you're just moving and you're just like somebody lays you two and a half and you go to three and a half and you don't look at the screen you're like okay three and a half minus 165 and you just type that in the money line and then you just go to like two dog 15 in the first half and you just move and you don't think about it somebody bet you over 52 you might go to 54 or 54 and a half you move the first half a point maybe a point and a half and you just go on to the next one and you figure it out in an hour and you know you just try not to write three bets on the same side it's it's incredibly challenging and incredibly fun and, and I wouldn't do anything else. That's amazing. That is great, man. Good stuff. I, 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 I love the passion in your voice and how you describe it. It's just so cool. How, um, how, how, you know, you're, you, it's, it's so challenging and it's so hard, you know, you, you, you're in the tank with piranhas and, and you are just fighting them off. You know what I mean? And, and just slapping them away. And, uh, and if you and if you just, if you don't slap them away, they're gonna start eating at you. But you just keep slapping away. Psh, psh, psh. Um, I just find it so so fascinating, um, you know, to be able to do that. It's just um, you know you're playing defense, kind of right. And then but you have a, 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 a that's how I, the kind of analogy I like to use. Like you know what I mean? To be that you're just defending the 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 the, the fortress from having you know somebody try to, to try to infiltrate and. Uh, it's just, um, it's just such a challenging challenge. You know, what, what percentage would you say, Jeff, of your clientele would you consider, um, you know, I don't want to say sharp, but sharp enough that you're going to move the number. I would say at least bets we take from 5 a.m. to 9 a.m. Pacific on college basketball, 95% of them. Uh, would fit that profile. And the number might be higher than that. And the people who are playing, we got a couple guys that play recreationally in the morning, but like for the most part, 
it's, you know, I'm moving it. Um, even if it's a small move, it's getting moved. Um, unless it's a situation where you've moved it to write a bet. Sometimes, you know, sometimes somebody lay a nine and a half that, and you know, it's a side, you don't want to get bet twice, get bet twice on, you might go to 11 or 11 and a half. And somebody might write you the plus 11 and a half and you don't move it. Cause you want to write two bets. Cause you think the number is going to get there. And that's, again, that's just step, you know, thought thinking level number three, where you're just trying to anticipate the market sometimes. And a lot of it, it's who's betting it or, you know, okay, they've, they've bet this team like three games in a row and they just bet them again. Like I might make a, you know, maybe I might make a bigger move, but I also means I I'd have to remember that that happened, um, which you don't always remember that that happened, but sometimes I do. Um, it's wild. Like there was, it was probably the first week there was a turn, one of the tournaments in Las Vegas. It was the morning game. And I have no idea. Like the number could open, the total opens 135. The might, might be, might go to 125. It might go to 145. I have no idea when I sit in the chair, mm-hmm. but it's my job to figure it out throughout the morning. And it's, it's wild. There was a game total open somewhere in the 30s. It gets bet to Ford at 140, you know, we're a few bets high and somebody who we really respect bets under 140. And it's in the middle of the craziness where I'm not even looking at the screen or thinking, I'm just trying to keep up with all the bets and moving. And I think I went from 140 to like 137 or 137 and a half and immediately got three bets over instantaneously. And at that point, you know that the under was a complete fake out to get more on the other side. So I went from 137 and a half to like 143 in one move, a five and a half or a six point move. Cause now I know there's no question in my mind. They're trying to get as much on over as possible. So, you know, you're right. A slew under 43, under 42 and a half, under 42. Eventually the market gets there. You meet in the middle. Like, I don't remember what the game closed up. Probably 141 and a half or 142. And we ended up getting to where, you end up being a couple bets hot, like on the correct side and (laughs) the wrong side won by like 20 points, which was the funniest part in all of it. But sometimes like after you've been doing this for so long, you just, you know, instantaneously when somebody sends you a wrong bet and you just have to know and go and trust it and write to it. And you can't really, you can't explain it. You just know when it happens. Do you, have a, a system where it tells you what the danger numbers are when, when you're moving that aggressively. Like you, you gotta go figure, you gotta go figure it out. Okay. Um, so it doesn't automatically like, happen for you. No, usually there's a range. Like if a game, like a game gets bet from three and a half to six, and then you write some back, like, you know, five's probably not going to be good. Yeah. Um, you, you know, mm-hmm. but, but they're usually in a range. And I remember that specific game, we had two what I like to call Armageddon numbers where like, I don't think we would have won a bet or we might've won like one bet or two bets of the 20 that were placed or 40 that were placed or how many ever there were. Um, but we had 138 and 142 were the terrible numbers. And I don't think I've ever seen a game where the two disaster numbers were five numbers apart where wow. everything in the middle was okay. That's amazing. Um, yeah. It doesn't happen very often, but it can and like with the business model we have, like sometimes, I don't know, sometimes you just got to throw, 
like fundamentals out the window in the moment and just do what you think is right. And if people with experience doing what they think is right, more often than not, they're right. One last question um, before we close up here, Jeff, this is such a fascinating conversation. I want to talk about, um, you know, particularly in football, when, when the decision to move the juice versus the decision to move the spread versus the decision to move both, um, you know, I, I, particularly maybe on the key numbers, like there's everyone, you know, there's different philosophies on that. I kind of wanted to get your take on it. I don't really ask this question too often, but I figured you'd be the perfect guy to ask. Um, what, you know, when do you decide to, uh, to attach juice to a number? You know, some people don't move the juice at all. They just book everything at minus 110. Um, uh, and then, and some people are, are, you know, love moving the juice and, 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 and even, even in college basketball, they move the juice. Some guys will, you know, you'll see a 146, 115 for some, you know, it, it, it just all depends. Um, what's your take on that? What's your stance and why? Like the football is, I think if you, if you haven't taken a bet of substance yet, and like, let's say you, you really think you have no opinion on the game and you think the market is at least close enough to write to where you're going to hang a market number and the market will call it as two and three quarters. Some places have two and a half, 20, some places have, you know, three dog 20. You you just kind of, you just go with something. I don't know if there's really, you know, uh, a hard and fast rule. Some people might think one thing, some people might think the other. It's a lot easier to make that decision after you've seen action on one or both sides. Like if somebody takes plus three and somebody takes like lays you two and a half, and let's say they both laying one tenth uh, for sake of this discussion. Now you got to make a decision. So let's say you take the plus three bet first. And then you move it and you go to two and a half, which is, it's a pretty three to two and a half, one ten, one ten is a pretty big move uh, from one bet. And so, th- so now somebody else with a brain lays you two and a half. You have to make the decision. Am I okay taking a second limit bet here minus two and a half, or do I want to take the second limit bet plus three? And again, it's in the moment and not every game is going to be the same. Okay. Who bet each one? Is it somebody who is really just betting their opinion and has some influence on the market? Is it somebody that might have an opinion and maybe a couple places just moved and they want to swoop in and grab it before it's gone? Um, And that's more about a knowledge of your customers and who's making these bets and what their patterns are. Do they have the ability to throw you a curveball that make you a garbage bet every once in a while to get you off the trail? Like, it's all it's all in the moment there's no um there's really no uh, rhyme or reason as to why it's just whatever feels right in the moment and the betters are the one help like steering you in that direction beautiful great answer jeff name of the podcast called be better betters i always like to close asking if there's one bit of advice a lot of aspiring betters pros uh semi-pros guys that just want to you know, make a little extra money. What, what's, what's some advice that you would give uh, someone to become a better, better? Like for the more recreate, not recreational, but like the newer, uh, you know, with all these states going legal and all these people like now getting more involved, like 
understanding that the market's opinion is better than your opinion nine out of 10 times is was like the first challenge I learned in like 2011, back when I started and taking what you know and throw it out and starting to trust the market more um, until you get to the point where you can actually like make a good number. And yeah, there are times where maybe the market isn't right, but for the most part, the market at these places that, you know, Penny, Chris, Circa, you got to trust that the numbers, if not right, it's pretty close to right. Um, You know, and if we're at, if we're at six on a game and a couple other places are at six on a game, uh, you know, and everywhere else is at six and a half, you don't want to be betting the favorite. Uh, You you just trusting the market is one of the first things I learned. And there's really some validity to it. Beautiful. Respect the market. Um, you can't think that you're the smartest uh, or the sharpest tool in the shed or you'll get cut. Jeff, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Um, it's been such a pleasure, man. You have, uh, you know, enlightened us. And I, I love talking to you guys. The whole circuit crew is absolutely incredible. Um, and I loved sharing some of those Cantor stories and hearing uh, the Colbert days uh, that were near and, and dear to me. So, um, and um, all the testament to you guys at Circa for doing what you're doing. Keep up the great work. The world is watching. And, um, and, and you know, I'm, I'm your biggest fan. I, um, I really um, think you guys, it's, it's only um, bigger and better from here. And, and that's saying a lot, given how you guys have only been open for just a few a short time, that you could actually keep, keep uh, getting better and, and better. So that's just uh, the testament to your crew and, and, and how good you guys are, are, are doing. So um, thank you so much, Jeff, for coming on. I appreciate the kind words. Uh, thanks for having me, Spank. Thanks so much for the time. Until next time.